Yes. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our February uh, Tosca 3030. So the topic today is, uh, it has to do actually with um, the issuance of Section 5B SNRs. Now, this this presentation had a much more provocative title uh, when it was sent out initially. Uh, but, you know, I'm battling a cold this week, and I don't feel as feisty as I, uh, as I normally am. So in any event, I'm... Herb Stryker, and I'm joined today by my partner, James Votaw. Now, James is uh, recently joined us about a year ago. Uh, he was at uh, Wilmer Cutler and Manette Phelps before then. He's an excellent uh, Tosca and FIFRA lawyer. He's a lawyer's lawyer, and so we're very pleased to have him uh, join us on our uh, program today. So what's the issue? Well, I think you all know that ever since the Lautenberg Amendments were enacted, uh, EPA has been struggling uh, with the PMN program. been large, huge backlogs. Many more chemicals have been regulated. Um, there are lots of uh, uh, PMNs that are being held up. Uh, and EPA is still struggling uh, with how to manage the PMN program post Lautenberg. What's caused that, as you well know? Uh, the Lautenberg Amendments require EPA to do two things. One is to make an affirmative safety finding before they clear PMN. And secondly, they have to consider not only the uses that are identified in the PMN, uh, but also reasonably foreseeable uses or uses that the PMN submitter doesn't contemplate, uh, but EPA has to review those uses anyway. So what EPA has done, at least proposed to do, in order to clear up this problem is to move to some, something which is called a one-step process. So normally, if EPA has a concern about a chemical, it'll issue a consent order on the Section 5E, and that binds the PMN submitter, and then goes to a significant new use rule several years later to bind everyone else. Um, what EPA is proposed to do in this, in this case is really issue a SNR first. Issue the SNR while the PMN um, is uh, undergoing review. The SNR would regulate or address any concerns associated with not only the uses that are identified in the PMN, but also reasonably foreseeable uses. And then once the SNR is in place, once regulation is in place, then EPA then can then make a, the requisite safety finding in that the, the, uh, the substance or the activities involving the substance are safe in light of the restrictions that have already been imposed by the SNR. So that's the idea that EPA has. It's kind of a one-step to market, basically. Now, environmental groups have, I think it's fair to say, filed uh, numerous sets of comments in opposition to this. In fact, uh, there was a lawsuit filed in January uh, in the Second Circuit, uh, where EPA, uh, a lawsuit over EPA's draft uh, framework document, which is basically a guidance document to lay out how EPA plans to proceed um, to review PMNs in the future. I think if anyone knows something about administrative law, you know that you really can't successfully maintain a suit on a guidance document, and much less a draft guidance document. But nonetheless, there is a, a suit in the Second Circuit uh, over EPA's uh, tentative framework document. We think that what's implicit here is that, uh, you know, that we, when EPA can expect litigation, uh, to the extent that it makes um, um, a uh, safety finding 
that uh, depends on the pre-issuance of a SNR. So, a little bit about the PMN program. Um, you know, I think you, as you all know, EPS made four findings that something is unlikely to present unreasonable risk. That's a requisite safety finding, or could present unreasonable risk, or there's insufficient information to determine um, uh, whether um, uh, a risk is presented, or that the substance or activity may present a reasonable risk. Those are the four possible findings that EPA can make under Section 5. As I pointed out, what's very, very important, EPA must consider not only uh, the uses that are identified by the PMN submitter and the PMN, uh, but also um, any reasonably foreseeable uses. And these are unidentified uses, but they are considered by EPA to be reasonably foreseeable. So normally, um, uh, in the normal course, and this has been going on for many, many years, if EPA has a concern uh, with the uh, uses identified in PMN, it really basically gives the PMN submitted four choices. Uh, they can suspend the PMN and, you know, provide information. Uh, they can amend the PMN to resolve concerns. Um, they can withdraw the PMN and, you know, perhaps do testing and come back later. Or they can negotiate a consent order, Section 5 consent order with the agency. Those are the four options you've probably gotten if you've involved in the PMN process. These uh, action letters from the agency, and they usually give you the same menu of four options. Now, the important thing to know about consent orders is they're actually only buying the PMN submitter. Now, consent orders frequently have a provision that require the PMN submitter uh, to notify customers of the restrictions under the uh, consent order uh, and, you know, and have the customer agree in writing that they'll abide by those restrictions. Um, and, but that's only the, the customers are under no legal obligation. There's no legal obligation for them to do that. It's more of a sort of a gentleman's agreement. Uh, though it is true that if the uh, PMN submitter learns uh, that the customer is not abiding by these restrictions, then it has to cease uh, supply to the customer. But in any event, the consent order, as is important to understand, um, is only legally binding on the PMN submitter. So it does provide a gap in coverage. Unlike a SNR, a SNR will bind everyone. Anyone who uh, manufactures, processes, or uses the chemical is bound by the SNR. There's no gap in coverage. Um, and as we'll argue and point out uh, in the second half of this presentation, in many, many ways, in our view, a SNR is much more productive uh, than a consent order. So what's the problem with uh, reasonably foreseeable uses? Well, if you sort of think about it, um, you know, EPA makes, uh, you know, decisions based on what's in the PMN document. Um, and the PMN document is not going to talk about uses that the PMN submitter is not interested in. So there's going to be no exposure information in the PMN document about reasonably foreseeable uses in most cases. So it's very, very hard for EPA, it seems to us, to really decide uh, that a uh, foreseeable use of a substance is safe because there will not be sufficient information in the PMN to make that determination. So in general, what's going to happen is that because EPA now has to consider and uh, foreseeable uses, 
then it always has to regulate. It always has to regulate those foreseeable uses. And there might be a few exceptions. You might have a chemical that's so innocuous, or there's so much tox data known about that chemical, um, that it's possible to make a decision about safety, even in the absence of good exposure information, and that, you know, or it, it may be an innocuous substance, such as certain polymers or biochemicals. And so it really doesn't matter what the uses are, because of the nature of the substance, uh, EPA can conclude uh, that all uses of that substance are safe. Uh, but those are the exceptions rather than the rule. In general, when one's dealing with foreseeable uses, there's basically a default to regulation. So a little bit about the old non-5e SNR process. Um, I think you may well all be familiar with this. In the old days, pre Lonenberg, you know, if EPA was comfortable with the uh, uses that were identified in PMN, then it would allow the PMN submitter to go to markets, and then it would at some point later, usually several years later, issue a significant new use rule to prohibit anyone, including the PMN submitter, from engaging in um, uses outside the scope of PMN. Um, but again, just so we are, we are clear on that, there was a several-year gap between the time that the PMN submitter went to the market and the time that this SEC 95E SNR issued. So there was a gap in coverage. I think I was going to point out later here what EPA is proposing here in terms of having a SNR issue during the pendency of the PMN review period, which is a solution that EPA has come up with, actually provides no gap in regulation. Um, uh, in fact, everyone's going to be regulated. Everyone's going to be bound. There's going to be assurance uh, that the uses of the chemical are safe because they're going to be controlled by regulation uh, before the PMN submitter can go in market. So there's a big difference in our mind, a big improvement of what EPA is proposing here versus what it used to do in the old days. So here's a little handy chart. Uh, the Lautenberg Act requires EPA to make uh, three different determinations, possible determinations. <coughs> One is um, if it concludes that the uh, substance for activity uh, presents unreasonable risk, then the statute says it must act under Section 5F. Um, the EPA shall issue a proposed Section A rule or issue a uh, Section 5F order. And the term shall is used, which is important. If the EPA concludes that there's insufficient information uh, to make a determination or that the chemical may present a reasonable risk, then the statute says uh, that EPA must or shall issue a Section 5E order, but only to the extent necessary to protect against unreasonable risk. And then the third possibility is if EPA concludes that the chemical is not likely to present unreasonable risk, well, then the PMN submitter is allowed to go to market. Okay. So we talked about one-step, two-step. I want to explain this in somewhat detail. So two-step is the normal course. Two-step is EPA first issues a consent order that binds the PMN submitter. And then at some point later, issues a SNR to bind everyone. That's the two-step process. That's kind of what we're used to, um, uh, and it's been used in the past. 
uh, and it was used uh, in the early days after Lautenberg. Uh, it's a very lengthy, cumbersome process. The requirement to issue consent order is actually one of the main reasons why there's been a delay of getting new chemicals to market. And I think what we've been trying to say here is that consent orders provide a gap in coverage. They only buy the PMN submitter. Uh, the actual regulation or SNR, which binds everyone, actually comes out in practice several years later. So the two-step process, although it is something that we're familiar with, uh, is not ideal in our view. The one-step process, the one-step framework, which EPA has proposed in December, which has been challenged by the environmental groups in the Second Circuit, uh, and which my colleague James Vota will discuss at length in the second half of this uh, webinar, is that EPA first uh, uh, issues a SNR while the PMN review is, is uh, pending. The SNR will basically address all the issues associated not only with the uses identified in the PMN, but with the reasonably foreseeable uses. Uh, and the SNR, once in place, will ensure that there is binding regulation on everyone uh, to control any issues associated with the PMN substance, both for its identified and unidentified, but reasonably foreseeable uses. And then, once the SNR is in place, well, then EPA can conclude fairly that the uh, the use of the new chemical is safe because it's regulated and therefore cannot be unsafe, and therefore allow the PMN submitter to go to the market. Now, of course, what this means in practice is that the PMN submitter can't go to market in the normal 90 days. He has they have to wait for the SNR to issue before EPA will will uh, drop the PMN from review, and so that is that does cause delays. There's no question about that. Uh, but it, it remains to be seen how long you know EPA will take to actually issue these SNRs. Okay, I'm going to turn this over to my colleague James Votar now, who's going to talk a little bit about um, environmental group reaction to all this stuff and where we see uh, the better of the argument. James? All right. Thanks, Herb. Yeah, uh, as Herb said, what we've done is we sort of went through the, I think, the comments that the, uh, a number of NGOs have submitted uh, on the framework and looking at it, there was a letter that was also sent to EPA shortly after the public meeting uh, in, in early December. And they tried to pick out uh, and at least paraphrase, uh, I think, the arguments that were there, and I hope we've done so fairly. Um, I'm sure we'll hear if we have not, but I think we try to do this fairly. But the, the principal one is the, the, the new language in the, uh, in the in the statute now says you know shall so that if EPA makes a uh, may present or insufficient information finding it shall issue an order such that EPA's decision or uh, approach to just issue a SNR is insufficient under the statute. Um, and the the other uh, the other. Uh, uh, sort of point in support of that is a, a new section of Section 5F4 that provides that where EPA has issued an order uh, under under 5E or 5F, that it should also have to consider whether to also issue a SNR. Um, 
and, and justify it if it does not. Um, and they take that from the, the proposition that uh, Isneris not an ever intended to come before a consent order is, has, has been issued. It's not appropriate to use a, a, a SNR ahead of a consent order. But look, a um, couple things. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the Section 5e order is is required, but it's only required to the extent necessary to protect an unreasonable risk. And so, as as her pointed out, where EPA has issued the SNR and controlled risk. Uh, that the order might otherwise address, there's, you know, there's no uh, conduct uh, for the order to address. So that there, you know, it's, uh, if someone were imagined that an order would still uh, be, be required there, I mean, I'm not sure what it would address that wasn't already covered by the SNR, sort of some form over substance. But uh, the main point is the order, is, you know, the shall in, in Section 5E is conditioned on, you know, to the extent necessary to protect against unreasonable risk. You've got to read both pieces together. Uh, I didn't see this sort of this argument expressly, but there was the point was, I think, might also be made that the shall is new, that, uh, that this is how Section 5E has been changed and the agency needs to take that into account. But that's not really true either. Um, you know, there, in prior to the Lautenberg uh, amendments under Section 5e, EPA had sort of two choices. It could, when it once it made sort of the either the insufficient information finding or uh, may present an unreasonable risk finding, um, it had a choice to either issue an order or to it could also proceed by uh, seeking an injunction. And so the May, and, and, uh, you know, that was sort of the, the function of the May. It offered those, those two alternatives, and, the, and it involved a proposed order, and there was a way it sort of created a negotiation opportunity um, under the old statute. But the May was, in the use of the word May, was sort of critical to the way those, those other pieces worked, uh, the, the two uh, control options. After the amendments, that, you know, that alternative of working through um, alternatively, perhaps seeking an injunction, and the proposed order stage uh, went away, and so now the the the, the, the shall that you know in the past EPA had you know one way or another either shall issue the order or shall get the injunction, but the shall was there. Now with the injunction piece gone, uh, that shall has just been moved up to the front, where EPA, to the extent necessary to protect an unreasonable risk, shall issue an order. But it's, it's the same shall. It's not really a substantive change in the requirement that EPA act to address unreasonable risk where it makes the risk finding. So not really new. Um, and as to the point on Section 5F4, it absolutely does not say anything in there about uh, you know, requiring that, a, that a, uh, an order precede a SNR. And there certainly is nothing in the language of, in Section 5A2 uh, the piece that, uh, that authorizes EPA to issue SNRs, uh, that it's only limited to new chemicals. It's, uh, they use, you know, the, the, the phrase new chemicals elsewhere in that same section and clearly use, um, you know, just refer to the chemical substances in uh, the, the 5A2. And you can see why that EPA might choose to regulate as they're allowed to regulate, for example, categories, which may include both new chemicals and existing chemicals. Um, so, what, what's wrong with using SNRs? I think there are a number of policy arguments uh, that were also sort of raised in these comments. Um, one was that the, the conditions of use described in the PMNs have no binding effect and are enforceable uh, unless they're formalized in a 5E order. 
know, that this why a, a SNR is not sufficient. But as Herb pointed out, in fact, a 5e order only applies to the submitter and perhaps, you know, the, his one downstream customer with whom he has a contract. Uh, the SNR is much more protective and that it applies to everybody and without a gap uh, using the one-step process. Um, the comment has already also been made that SNRs were never intended as the primary mechanism for restricting uh, new chemical risk. That's just, it's just wrong. Uh, SNRs have always been sort of the counterpart for the order because, again, the order applies to the submitter. The SNR makes it applicable to everyone else. This has been, you know, in the regulations, uh, you know, prior to 1995, but most recently sort of amended significantly in 1995. So, it's just that's just a misunderstanding of um, how the new chemical process and regulatory process has worked. Um, I think the, the comments also made that you know EPA the SNRs are insufficient because in a SNR EPA doesn't have to include all the protections that are now included in the Section 5E order. And again, when you're talking about uh, foreseeable uses, I mean there there is no requirement in 5E to do anything in particular, except to prevent against an unreasonable risk. There's no requirement in 5E that EPA issue or require, for example, to require testing uh, or, or take any other specific measure, only that uh, it needs to take action to protect against unreasonable risk. Um, and, in, in, again, as uh, using the one-step process, you know, if, if EPA has issued a SNR during the review period, you know, before the, uh, the submitter can commence uh, manufacturer import, then that is you know, entirely sufficient to uh, to protect against unreasonable risk. If uh, EPA has concerns with the, uh, the the PMN, the intended use, the, the use that's described in the PMN, it may well. I think I should use the next point, but we'll go. We'll go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the one-step approach intended to reduce or uh, eliminate the use of Section 5E orders to control unintended but foreseeable uses. So, um, again, uh, as, as Herb described, you know, using the, the two-step process, if to the extent that someone were to say that that was required by the Lautenberg Act amendments, the movement of that shall, you know, that order, and as it was, was used the first part of, uh, of, of, of this year and, and parts of last year, um, excuse me, 2017 and 16, it's, it's, a, it's an empty order. It's a bridging order that, can, that limits the submitter to the terms of the, the PMN, um, and you know, it, it doesn't have necessarily any additional content. So, yes, it may eliminate the use of orders, but not in a way that makes any kind of substantive difference. So the, the last of this point I was starting to make before, and I, I, I jumped ahead, and this is the, the concern that the use of SNRs uh, will reduce the, and then I think that this may really be the sort of the fundamental issue that drives a lot of these concerns, but it's the, the idea that using SNRs is going to reduce the amount of testing that EPA requires. And uh, so we sort of break it out into, into two pieces. One, you know, where EPA has no concerns with the use described in the PMN, sort of the non-5E SNR uh, situation, it's, you know, EPA doesn't typically, there is no order for the, for the submitter. The submitter is not typically required to produce any data, but in the Federal Register notice that goes with a, the accompanying SNR, 
you know, EPA will be very clear about the testing data that it expects to receive if someone wants to do something different, where if they want uh, additional information to evaluate, you know, other uses. So it's, uh, again, this is using a SNR up front without testing is entirely consistent with, with current practice uh, for addressing uh, situations where EPA has mostly has, has uh, uncertainty about the, the foreseeable use, not the current use. And where EPA has, has uh, concerns about the current use, um, EPA will require the testing. And I think that's also clear from the framework document that it's going to, it can require testing and that can be done through the order. The, the, it also can be um, incorporated through this, you know, a SNR itself. I'm not sure if the agency is ready to go uh, that way rather than, than doing it through an order. But there are default terms within the um, Part 721 rules for, for sort of some uh, building in a testing requirement into the SNR itself. But again, where, where EPA has concerns about the submitter's use, the use described in the PMN, um, it may choose to address that concern with um, uh, testing, or or it may you know it may be that it can be that the the particular aspect of that use that drives the information concern, the information gap, can be walled off. So that, for example, if there's concern about aquatic toxicity, if uh, you know there's a SNR term that keeps them from releasing to water, you know which can only be relieved until. Um, uh, once you know water uh, aquatic toxicity testing is completed, you know, that that requirement can be pended, and it doesn't necessarily need to be done until someone actually wants to use the process in a way that would have a water release, or or if the, if the uh, concern is more fundamental, they need to sort of confirm that a uh, control provision that they have put into place is sort of sufficient, which requires upfront data. Then you may get a testing requirement right away. But the point is that the use of SNRs really has no effect on on when EPA will require data uh, or, or testing, and the fact that an order isn't used uh, doesn't mean that EPA will you know require less testing than it otherwise would. And uh, so, in many ways, I think I think Herb also made this point that you know many ways SNRs are more protective than orders, principally for the, the, for the point we've made over and over is that you know, the, the, an order only binds the, the submitter. And under the old practice, there was, at least there was sort of this gap between the time when the order was issued and the time that a SNR may come into effect, which may be months or years later. SNR is using this, this process up front, uh, binds everyone at the same time. There is, there is no sort of gap, there is no, no loophole. Um, Right, and, and as so in, in the past, and I'm not sure that it was ever actually a problem, but you know, prior under the prior practice, um, there would be a gap between the time when the notice of commencement was filed and the time that the SNR was proposed. Under under uh, uh, the 271 regulations, the EPA you know, committed to try and do that within 270 days, but there was always uh, a risk that if not the submitter, who was really bound by sort of its Commitments of, uh, to intent, as described in its PMN, so usually it would not be a submitter. But there's always a risk that someone else would engage in a use that EPA otherwise wanted to foreclose with a SNR, and using the one-step method sort of closes this this potential loophole. Um, and uh, you know, in the future, as I'm describing, um, 
in the future, if someone wants to engage in a use that is uh, not allowed by the SNR, requires a significant new use notice, a SNUN, um, uh, EPA you know, can usually be expected to require testing before that uh, additional use uh, would be required. That would be allowed, excuse me. So I think that was sort of the end of, of um, our points. Um, yeah. I just have maybe one one sort of final thought. So, I mean, none of these none of these processes are particularly uh, good. Right? I mean, there's no question that the Lawnberg amendments has really made it much more difficult to get new chemicals to the market. So either you got a consent order and followed by SNR, or SNR first, uh, and then you're uh, you know then the PMN is you know dropped from review. I mean, things are going to take much longer in most cases than they did in the past. There's no way around that. I guess the question that people need to think about is, well, you know, if you get a consent order and it's because of unidentified uses, reasonably foreseeable uses, it has nothing to do with your use. I mean, the consent order basically says that, you know, your substance poses unreasonable risk and therefore... Uh, you know, EPS take action to address that risk before you're allowed to go to market. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's a concern for companies or they'd rather, you know, someone could fairly say, well, wait a second, the use identified by PMN is perfectly safe and we're controlling the uh, the activities. There's no concern here. What you're talking about is really some, you know, possible probable hypothetical use of the chemical by someone else. Why is it that I should sign a consent order saying that my, you know, my TMN, the substance I've identified, poses unreasonable risk? I think some companies may prefer that this whole question about risks and, and uh, be addressed in the SNR. Um, and then, then the PMN submitter can actually go to market and say, well, you know, EPA concluded that I can go to market and that my chemical, as I identified its use and plan to use it, doesn't pose unreasonable risk and they are allowing me to go to market. There might be some advantage of that. So I think that's why, you know, some companies may feel that this one step is, a, is preferable from a market perception point of view. Admittedly, it's a subtlety. Um, I'm not sure how important it is. Uh, but also, admittedly, uh, no matter how you slice it, because of Lionberg amendments, it's much more difficult to get new chemicals to market. And there's just that, that situation has not changed, whether it's one step or two step. Okay, we're at the end of the 3030. Uh, the next one is uh, in March 14th. No idea yet what the topic is. And my colleague wants to let you know that there's the OSHA 3030, uh, which we didn't list here, but it's usually the last Wednesday of the month. Um, and there's a FIFA 3030 now, and, you know, we, we may actually throw more uh, 3030 acronyms into this exercise. Anyway, I want to thank you all. I'm Herb Stryker, and my colleague, uh, James Votar. Here we are. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. He's good.